I desire this morning, church, that you would take God seriously. Our God is not Santa Claus. He is creator of all things. He's your creator. You need to take him seriously. Even as a believer. He's not your boyfriend. He's not your buddy. He's a friend of sinners. But he's your Lord as well. You remember when you uh, first... uh, as a child, as a, as a young man or woman, went into the deep side of the pool? Think back to that. Or, or maybe there was that first time you finally got the nerve to go down the big kid's slide at the park. Or maybe there was that one Thanksgiving dinner where finally I get to sit at the grown-up's table. These events are fun to look back on but uh, even with these things there, there is a bit of seriousness to them because that deep side of the pool is dangerous if you're not careful the big kids slide can cause serious damage if you don't take it seriously and the things that are said at the grown-ups table may sometimes be a little more heavy There's a sober seriousness. But at the same time, there is also this whole new world, right? Uh, Of experience and enjoyment with the deep side of the pool, the big slide or the grown-up's table. It's exciting. There's something special. There's something bigger about it. So it is with the doctrines that we're going to be looking at today. The doctrines of election and reprobation. There is a serious soberness to what we're going to look at today. But also, there is an opportunity for you, Christian, for greater understanding into the things of God. To a bigger view and experience of who God is. And what he's like. And that leads to a a deeper and and more full enjoyment of him as God. So I trust that as we look at this, these doctrines, uh, you will not only be aware of the seriousness of it, sobriety of it, but but the, the glimpse into the majesty of God. That you will understand he is God, you are not, and that will help you to trust him. Chapters 7 through 11 in Exodus record the plagues of Egypt. We've looked at this before. These 10 plagues happened over the course of about a year. And these plagues have come in three sets of three with one final one that we're going to look at in the weeks to come. So three sets of three. The first three, the water into the blood, the frogs, the gnats. And we saw that in those first three plagues that God is is, uh, demonstrating himself, displaying himself as the unrivaled God. The, The next three plagues were the plagues of the flies and the pestilence on the livestock and the boils on everybody's skin. And we saw in, in those plagues how all of these terrible things happen to the Egyptians, but not 
a single hair on the Egyptian or on the Israelites were harmed. We saw that there is this discriminating kind of love where God chooses to love certain people. And we should celebrate that because there is safety there in that love. In these three plagues that we'll see today, the hail, the locusts, and the darkness, they, they take a very serious turn. Things get real serious real quick. I mean, if it hasn't already... Right, It's gone from, you know, the water turning to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the, our, you know, our livestock, you know, died. That's, that's, you know, a trial. I have this sickness that boils on my skin. That's uncomfortable. But now we're talking about life and death. Now we're going to total ruin with the hail, killing livestock and even servants that are left out and don't take the word of God seriously. The locusts that, as a, as a sequel to the hail, completely wipe out the economy and the food in all of Egypt. And then this darkness, this, this darkness, we'll get to it later, hopefully, but this darkness, he says, is a darkness that can be felt. I, I don't know if, You've ever been in a dark room, but there's always hope that there's, you can turn on a light or get your phone out in time. If you've ever been in a dark place, uh, there, is, there is a darkness that can be felt where it, it is chilling to the bone, where you can't see anything. You can't see your palm in front of your face. It's terrifying. And so these next three plagues, they take a very serious turn. Catastrophic, even ominous tone. This shift follows what we saw last week. This shift to this dread, it does connect to what we saw last week of, of of the electing, kind, gracious love of God for his people. That he'll deal with his enemies, but he will protect and care and love his people. And that is unrivaled love. And we can be safe there. But today we're looking at, well, what about those that are not inside his love? What about the rest? If God chooses whom he loves out of all humanity, and that's what we believe, that with, unless God chooses us, none of us will choose him. And then unless he chooses us, we, we are all destined rightly for hell. That's what we deserve. And if God does choose some out of love and mercy to be his own, to save from judgment, then the necessary truth that follows is that Those that he does not choose are left to be lost in their sin forever. And not only this, but but those who have been preordained to remain in their sin are still held accountable for their sin. They are still considered guilty before God for their rejection of him. 
This is very serious. It's a very fearful thing. And I have to be very careful of how I present this. So I need your prayers. What we must not do with these kinds of doctrines, these doctrines that are uncomfortable to some, uh, doctrines that some quote-unquote preachers feel like they have to apologize for, uh, these doctrines that uh, the world hates and is offensive to them, uh, these doctrines that are hard to understand and hard to reconcile. The fact that God would, in his sovereignty, choose that those whom he doesn't save would be left for judgment. But yet, at the same time, he would hold them accountable and judge them for staying in their sin. Those two realities seem to be irreconcilable. Uh, But they do meet together. They do reconcile in the eternity of God, in in his mind, in his understanding. Our inability to reconcile those two realities uh, is showing that there's something wrong with us, not something wrong with God or his word. So what, what, what we must not do with these kinds of doctrines is to skip it, right? It's here, and I hope to show you that. Uh, what we must not do is downplay these doctrines to, you know, make it not so severe or serious. We must not deny these doctrines and simply ignore them or teach against them. But even if we teach them, we must not apologize for them. So you won't hear me saying, sorry, but this is the way it is. Or sorry that God is like this. No, he he needs no apology. What we must not do with these kinds of doctrines is to make them appealing to a sinful person, to change and to soften the tone of Scripture so that the lost person will finally be more open to God. We must not do that. Nor nor must we attempt to fully explain. I think that's where I would fault my tendency is to try and just dig down and try and find the root and, 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 and find the answer. But I can't. Not with this. There are some things where God just says, this is the way it is, and I need you to trust me, and I need you to just accept it. So in response to this, Three things. You must be stunned at the sovereignty of God, that is. Be silent before the sovereignty of God and be sober as we contemplate the sovereignty of God in salvation. And again, all these things are because we need to take God seriously. Now, first of all, we need to be stunned, right? I think that's, I mean, that's, that's the point of it all. Is, is to worship God. To come face to face with the nature and the character of God. So first of all, be stunned. And that is, be stunned that God is sovereign. 
God is sovereign over all. Either he is sovereign or he's not. He can't be sovereign over most stuff. If you're sovereign over most stuff, you are not sovereign. He has to be sovereign over all, even the hearts of men. There is nothing and no one that is outside of his control. There is no event, great or small, that is outside of his decree or plan. You see, God is never surprised. Psalm 33, 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. That is, the plans of God's heart stand from generation to generation. This generation that we live in thinks it's so revolutionary. Thinks that we have the answers. That finally we've, we've come up with the right way to do things. Finally, we can change the world. Finally, we can change society. Finally, we can change what they're really saying is the hearts of men. But what this generation will soon come to realize as they fail and falter and get a little more gray hairs on their head is that God's plan is not altered because of them. That God's decree and God's standards are not different because of them. They haven't finally convinced him to change things up. And if anything happens, it's not because of them, it's because of God. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades. In the context, the grass and the flowers are the most powerful people on the earth and entities. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. And we're not just talking about this word. That's true. It's absolutely true. But we're talking about his plans, his decree. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. How is there no one like you, God? Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, as I, as I declare and, and decree at the beginning, my purpose, you can picture God at, at the beginning of time, before there was the first second. I know that sounds crazy, but there was a, you could say, a time before time. God made time. He existed in eternity past. And in, eternity, in, in, in his eternity, about to, as it were, make the first day, God says, 
my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Imagine that. God, before Genesis 1, says, I'm going to do this. And I've planned it all out. And none of it is going to be changed. None of my purposes will be thwarted. I will make sure that what I plan comes to fruition. And then, Genesis 1. Wow. What a God we have. Christian, God is never caught off guard. You might be, but he's not. You can trust him. His plans are never detoured by anything or anyone. You know, we were on the road uh, yesterday a little bit, visiting some folks, and there was, we were on a main freeway, uh, 680, and there's this whole other freeway, 242. The whole freeway was blocked off. And I mean, you could just tell people were freaking out. I mean, they were just making all kinds of bad decisions as far as lane changes, cutting everybody off. They didn't know what to do. They were planning on going on that freeway. And that was no longer an option for them. What, what do I do? I'm not prepared for this. I have to change up my plan, change up my route. That never, ever happens to God. Wow. The Westminster Catechism says it more completely and finely than I can. Question. What are the the decrees of God? What are the decrees of God? Answer, God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he has for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. So what's the decree of God? His eternal counsel and that act of deciding what to do deciding what would happen that is unchangeably foreordaining whatsoever comes to pass that is the decree of god next question in the westminster catechism is what has god decreed specifically concerning angels and men Because we saw in the previous answer that God's decrees specifically have to do with the things of life. And especially the the plan of redemption. So what has God specifically decreed concerning angels and men? Answer. God, by an eternal and immutable, that is unchangeable decree that we just defined, out of his mere love, For the praise of his glorious grace to be manifested in due time, God has elected some angels to glory and in Christ has chosen some men to eternal life. 
and all the means thereof, that is, everything that was necessary to bring that to fruition, that is the death of Christ. And, it says, what else? The same answer. And, also, according to his sovereign power and the unsearchable counsel of his will. This is where he just, they're, they're admitting it's just too big for me. According to his sovereign power and the unsearchable counsel of his will, whereby he extends or withholds favor as he pleases, it's up to him, he has passed by and foreordained the rest to dishonor and wrath, to be for their sin inflicted to the praise of the glory of his justice. You see, If God chose you, Christian, that means that there are others he did not choose. And I like the wording here. He passed them by. He passed them by. Exodus 9. We read it, but let's reread a few verses. Exodus 9, 13 through 17 we see the eternal decree of God here being carried out right before our eyes. Notice. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Okay, we're used to that. We've this, isn't the first, this is actually the third time that we've heard this. The third time that he's been sent to Pharaoh in the morning. But here is something different. Verse 15. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. Remember, he's, he only struck the livestock with pestilence before. But he says, if I had done that to you, Pharaoh, and your people you would then have been cut off from the earth. That is, you would have died. Verse 16. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain. You know why you're alive, Pharaoh? In order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. But he still holds Pharaoh accountable. Still you, Pharaoh, exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. But you're still sinning. Man. God says through Moses in verse 14, this time I'm going to send all my plagues. Meaning the, the rest or the, the fullness of the plagues. He's saying, he's signaling, he, I'm almost done. I'm, I'm, I'm pouring out the, the last few drops of this cup of wrath on Pharaoh. But then in verse 15, we're given kind of a peek behind the curtain. We, we as it were, are given access to the, the grown-ups table where we get to listen in and get all the dirt, right? But we get to listen in here into the heart and the mind of God. Verse 15, God shows that He did not unleash all of his fury upon Pharaoh all at once. He could have, but he didn't. Why? 
Why did he dole out these plagues carefully and methodically? Remember, it went over the course of a year. It wasn't like just, you know, just blah, you know, just pouring out his anger and his indignation all at once, day after day after day. No, it was methodical. It was careful. God was in full control of exactly what plague at exactly what time. I mean, if you, if, if you notice as we were reading that there were certain vegetation, certain crops that had not yet sprout. And so even when the hail came, those crops were still left. Be, and God timed it right because he knew that those would ripen right in time for the locusts to come. So he was very careful. He timed it out perfectly. Why? If God had unleashed his full fury upon Pharaoh, with, namely this pestilence, Pharaoh would have died already. But God didn't want him to die. You see, God's sovereignty is over the course of events that happen in Pharaoh's life. These plagues and the, and the meter of them. But his sovereignty goes beyond just that, that he can just do these wonders. He's going to show this. Verse 16. I have allowed you to remain. For this reason, I have allowed you to remain. The wording in the New American Standard, I have allowed you to remain, is a little unfortunate. ESV does do it better here. This is one of the few times that ESV is better. I'm just joking. The ESV does do better here. When, when the ESV says, it says, for this purpose I have raised you up. So it's not just I haven't killed you yet, but you are Pharaoh because of my purpose. Stunning. Because it's contrasted with verse 15, right? I could have killed you already. He says in verse 15, I could have killed you already, Pharaoh, but kill you? Cut you off from the land? No, verse 16. No, I would never do that because I made you for a purpose. And until I fulfill that purpose, you will not die. That's what he's saying. What's the purpose? Why? Did Pharaoh have the upbringing that he did? Why was he born and raised in Egypt as he was? Why in that family of royalty? Why was Pharaoh given such success? Why, why was the timing that this Pharaoh would be around as the Egyptians, or excuse me, the Israelites would, would uh, be there and building his empire as free labor? Why the events of Pharaoh's life? Why is he installed as king of Egypt? What's the purpose? Verse 16, the glory of God. The glory of God. You see, God raised Pharaoh to power and preserved his life in order to show his power and proclaim his name throughout all the earth. Look at chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. He says it again in a different way. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, 
and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I perform my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So not only do I want Pharaoh to know who I am, not only do I want all the nations to know who I am, I want my people to see me in all my glory. And that's why he didn't destroy Pharaoh. That's why he did a mysterious work in the heart of Pharaoh to, to harden him in his stubbornness. We'll, we'll try and explain that in a moment. But right now, the, the central, ultimate purpose of all things is the glory of God. And the glory of God is the purpose behind why he created Pharaoh, placed him in Egypt, raised him to great power, gave him great success as king, placed the Israelites in his land, allowed them to be enslaved, and struck Egypt with the plagues, and kept Pharaoh alive throughout all those plagues. It's all for the glory of God. All for that, he says, his namesake, his name, that is, his fame. Turn with me. To Romans 9. Romans 9. As if that passage wasn't difficult enough. Romans 9. You know, these Old Testament events like Pharaoh and the Exodus display these great truths that we're looking at today. But what's helpful for us as New Testament saints, is that the New Testament authors help to explain those Old Testament events. Right? So those Old Testament events uh, explain a doctrine. But what the New Testament authors do, especially with Paul and the writer of Hebrews, who may or may not be the same person, uh, what they do is they explain those doctrines that those events taught. So the events of the Old Testament explained who God was and what he's like and how he acts in the world. And the New Testament author looks back and explains the doctrines in, in a more crystallized or, or organized thought. All through Christ, of course. Paul, here in Romans chapter 9, has been explaining the details of the gospel uh, even before this chapter, Romans 1 through 8, he's been talking about the details of the gospel, like total depravity, redemption from sin, the atonement of Christ, justification, regeneration, salvation by faith, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and sanctification. If you don't know what those words mean, that's okay. Just stick around and we'll explain those things as you gather with us. But now Paul turns his attention to another detail of salvation, and that is election. I don't know how some people can say that. Election is not in Scripture. There's just a whole chapter devoted to it. Romans 9, 1 through 3. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow. And unceasing grief in my heart. What's wrong, Paul? For I could wish 
that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, my fellow Jews, my people, Israel. I wish, I mean, this is, this is profound into the heart of this man. I wish that I was damned to hell and rejected by Christ if only my people could come to know him. Oh, man. I don't pray that way. I should. Paul wishes that his brethren... The Jews, the Israelites, would be saved by grace through faith in Christ, but many are not. That's just the reality of the situation, especially for Paul in his day. Many were not, and it grieved Paul deeply. But here, he answers the question, well, why are so many Jews rejecting Christ while so many Gentiles are trusting him? Why is it this way, Paul? I mean, you're so grieved. Why is your God doing a miracle and great work with the Gentiles and just leaving the Jews behind. The, the, the question is, is did, did his promise fail? Verse 6. He answers that question. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. No. God's promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and to the people of Israel, has not failed. He'll make good on it. And, 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 and Romans 10 and 11 are going to explain how that's going to be fleshed out. God will make good on his promise to his people. Don't, don't doubt that. But it seems like he's rejected his people. Because so many of the pagan nations are coming to Christ. Accepting the Messiah of Israel while Israel itself is rejecting their own Messiah. But he wants to be clear. It's not that God has broke his promise. It's not the kind of God that we have. Also, he wants to be clear that just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that you're in the kingdom of God. Because God sovereignly narrowed his blessing in verse 7 through 9. If you look at 7 through 9, what he's saying there is God sovereignly narrowed his blessing from all of Abraham's descendants to all of, uh, all of Isaac's descendants. That is Isaac and not Ishmael. And then not only that, but, but the, the blessing of promise was narrowed even further within that family to the family of Jacob and not Esau. Look at verse 10 through 13. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. He's saying that the, 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 the redemption of his people was narrowed even further to Jacob. But he explains, For though the twins were not yet born, Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, but so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. That was countercultural. It was always the younger who would serve the older. But here, it would be Esau 
the older who would serve the younger, Jacob. And he crystallizes this in verse 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So what Paul is doing here is trying to explain why Israel is rejecting their Messiah and the Gentiles are receiving the Messiah. It's not that God has null and voided his promise to Abraham. But we also see throughout the Old Testament, especially in Genesis, that God has always been in the business of choosing a specific people on whom to bless. Sovereign election by God has always been how God operates from the beginning. This is nothing new. This is not a Pauline thing. This is not a Reformation thing. This is a Bible thing. Romans 9.14, Paul anticipates the worldly man's objection. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. So he anticipates this, this objection. I object. God is unjust. God is unjust. And the answer is absolutely not. Don't you dare say such a thing. We covered this last week. God is the creator of all things. And as sovereign creator and ruler, as God, he has the freedom to have mercy on whomever he desires. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. We looked at that verse last week. God is not under any obligation to us. He owes mercy to no one. And so when you get it, you fall on your face and you thank him. Because he doesn't owe you. He owes you the opposite. And you come to realize that. But not only this, verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Not only is God not under any obligation to shed mercy on anybody, but all of mankind is hopeless without him. The salvation of the sinner is not dependent on him or her willing or working their way to God. It's not how you get saved. Praise God that your salvation is not dependent on you, Christian, for you would never be saved. Your salvation, dear saint, from beginning to end, is entirely dependent on the mercy of God. Now, that we're out of time, now we get to the crux, right? The nitty-gritty, the, the bottom line. If God chose to have mercy on certain people, not based on anything in them, but based on His mercy alone, if that's true, then what about the rest? Verse 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. Ah, that's why we're here. The scripture says to Pharaoh. For this very purpose I raised you up. To demonstrate my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires. And he 
hardens whom he desires. The Apostle Paul goes back to our passage in Exodus to explain. If God sovereignly elects to have mercy and compassion on some, then for the others he has chosen to harden them. What does this mean? I don't want you to leave here with the wrong thought. So I'll say this. I'll say a few things and then we just won't do the other. We'll do the other points next week. First, what it does not mean. What the doctrine of reprobation does not mean. This is from Johnny Mack. Whatever God's sovereignty may mean in its fullness, it does not mean and cannot mean that he chose for men to become sinful. The perfect, holy, and righteous God is not responsible in the slightest way for the sinfulness of his creatures. So what we're not saying is that in eternity past, there was this mass of humanity and they were neutral to God. And God said, you know, I'm going to slice here and I'm going to take these and they'll be with me in everlasting glory and, and, I'm, and the rest of this neutral bunch who could go either way, I'm, I'm going to choose to send into hell. That's not what he did. No, in his eternal decree, what, and we're explaining things that are unexplainable, but what it seems is in his eternal decree, as he was looking at the mass of humanity, who would all reject him, as he looked down the chasm of time, and he looked at all of us who, who, who uh, cursed him, and rose our fist against him, and rebelled against him, and hated him, he looked at all of us in that state and said, out of that I will choose some. And the rest, I will give them what they want. I will pass them by, I will leave them in their sin. That's how we ought to understand this doctrine. God is not unjust in that he took people that could have gone either way and he pushed them over the other end into hell. No, that's not our God. Rather, everybody was running headlong into hell and he chased after some. He chased after you, Christian running full sprint into hell. And he tripped you up in your path and he picked you up and he brought you into his kingdom with all your filth, with all your rebellion, with all your hatred towards him. He said, I'll love you anyways. Oh, what mercy that he would do that to anybody. Because what would have been fair, what would have been just, what would have been right is he just says, okay, all of you into hell. And he could have done that, and he would have been, nobody could have found fault with him. So what this does mean is that God made a decree that you, Christian, of all people would be saved. Remember the sovereign decree of God. His wise free and holy decisions made in eternity past, decrees where he unchangeably fordained all that would ever happen. So out of that sinful and wretched humanity, he chose you, dear saint, a rebel and a worm. And for the rest of humanity that hates him from the depths of their dead hearts, 
he lets them have their hard hearts. And he even hardens it further against him. And he's not wrong for doing that. But why? Why? Why allow there to be sinful men? Why not save it all? Why this determination to execute wrath of God? Isn't God love? Yes, he is. And the display of his love is that he loves you, Christian. But also the display of his love is that he loves his glory. Why is this not wrong? It is because God's wrath is a righteous wrath. It is a glorious and fierce anger. It is a pure and holy indignation. And I can't say these words screaming at you because it's fearful. Because I know where I stand under this. It is a just and a lawful judgment upon sinful man. And if he never drew his sword of punishment upon sinful man, Christian, your worship of your God would be shallow. Because you would not appreciate what you are saved from. And God would only be seen by you as some kind of Santa Claus, here to just give us nice things because we think we deserve it. No, our God is not Santa Claus, church. He is righteous in all that he does, even his wrath. It is pure justice. Just a few verses I'll read to you. The rock, Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Job 34.12, surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Psalm 89.14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Psalm 119, verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Psalm 119, verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Your law is truth. Romans 2, 6. God will render to each person according to his deeds. And Psalm 58, 10, and 11. The righteous will rejoice When he sees the vengeance, he will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward. Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. In heaven, that will be your cry. I don't know why God rewarded me. But he did. And I see that he is a rewarder of the righteous. That it was all not for nothing. And in heaven you will see that there truly is a God who judges earth. His judgments are right and pure and clean. Christian, you need to take God seriously. He's not to be trifled with. Worship him 
with fear and trembling. Bow before his righteousness in all humility and marvel at the fact that he delivered you, yes, even you, from his wrath by the blood of his son. Next week we will look at what's our response to this. How do we respond? And, and what, what do we do with this as we go out and share the gospel? Does this mean we stop sharing the gospel because it's already been decreed? No, absolutely not. Part of the decree is you sharing the gospel. And we'll see this even from the words of Christ himself. That in one breath he holds up the sovereign decree and election of God. And in the next breath he says, come. Everybody come. Let's pray. Oh God. What can we say? You're too great for us. We, we try and wrap our minds around you, but it's impossible. And all we can do is just bow. Bow at your majesty. Bow at your eternal wisdom. Bow at the fact that you are sovereign over all. Every step of my life is under your care, O oh God. And I pray, God, for the lost one, for the sinner, that they would, would realize it's not too late. It's not too late. They can still come. That's why, that's why the end of time has not come. It's for them to come in and to experience the, the, the love of Christ. But, oh God, your patience will soon run out. There will, there will be a time when you say enough, like you did to Pharaoh. There will come a time where you'll say to us, you will never see my face again. What a dreadful thought. Oh God, work. Save souls. And use us to bring them in, we pray. Amen. Let's end.